0: your breath while the eyes of the idol with the iron head I glowing, just in ship sailing into the mist you were born with a snake in both of your fists. hurricane blow three down just around the corner for you but we're too so far off what good will really do
1: Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And joining us today is journalist, radio presenter, Jenny Ellis Q. Hey. And podcaster. thank you for joining us. Don't, don't forget. Well, come on, we got. I've gotten uh, in hot water before with with Jake Longstreth when I said that he has a podcast because Time Crisis is actually a, well, a internet radio show. That's so right. I, They're weird. About I'm trying it. to be. <laughs> I
2: appreciate. No, I appreciate. Listen, we're all broadcast professionals here, you know, that's right. and we're just trying to you know really shine on our strengths. But yes, uh, I appreciate you mentioning the podcast as well, and it's called LSQ, and it's interviews with artists. And but also the Longstreth mention cannot go unacknowledged right at the gate because I was listening to the Longstreth, the Longstreth Brothers episodes of the Joker Men podcast in preparation for this conversation. Of, um, <laughs> those were some
1: of the farthest out conversations we've ever had some uh, of the did- best
3: episodes or some of the worst episodes depending on your hey, feelings about that type of conversation
2: of, it's, a ta- it's a tale of two cities well uh david longstreth is my f- my friend and neighbor and uh oh, wow. and, and my housemate actually when i'm in la i rent a, an apartment from dave
0: and oh, hey.
2: uh yeah so i could it was really cool listening to i was like i gotta follow up with him next time i see him to get to get it deeper into some of the conversation about more blood more tracks there you go because i was i i, I agreed with some of his takes there he oh yeah some, well
3: some wild you said, takes. <laughs> if i, Ian, if I you remember just correctly it one of the
1: worst episodes. i i remember after that episode you were just like i you i think you were kind of just speechless but i i assured you that this was one of our it was a great moment in Jokerman podcast history. It, it was because definitely because it, it just went out really far. David Longstreth was uh, a real uh, a real astronaut on that episode. He went and took us to um, some really far out places with, with the I, I forget what exactly we're talking about. I think like AI Apple TV and,
3: screensavers at one yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> So you've got a lot to live up to there, Jenny. Uh, but uh, that's yep. a good uh, that's a good segue because that was the last uh, the last bootleg series uh, episode that we did. That was uh, volume fourteen, I think of the bootleg series, More blood, more tracks with Jake and Dave. And you, Jenny, are here to join us on uh, our our resumption of the journey into the bootleg series. And really the last one that we haven't touched yet, one that we failed to get to before we wrapped up our Bob. Uh, original run a few months ago. Bootleg Series 15, traveling through 1967 to 1969, 1970, something like that, right? About, sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, John Wesley Harding, Nashville Skyline. 69. 69. 67,
1: 69. There you go. Nice. John Wesley
3: Harding and Nashville <laughs> Skyline outtakes, as well as uh, some odds and ends um, uh, and uh, some fun. Odds and ends? Hanging odds out and with ends. the boys. Well, I feel like the Earl's <laughs> Drug
2: stuff is a little bit odds and endsy.
3: Yes, it is sort of a mishmash package. Uh, you know, I think there's like four or five separate time frames that all this stuff comes together from. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of fun, a lot of fun stuff in there, and it's going to be a treat for us, uh, Evan and I, because we haven't really gone back to Nashville and John Wesley Harding since we literally did the very first episodes of this program. Two and a half years ago that are just complete dog shit. And I encourage no one to listen to ever. They're not that bad. They're pretty bad. Welcome back to Joker Men. Episode two. Isn't this technically episode three?
1: Well, this is episode two, uh, part one. Because the first one was uh, split into two. So we've got episode one, part one. Or side A. Sure. And then side B.
3: Yeah, we'll stick with the uh, the record flipping uh, conceit for the titling of the episode. I think
1: it's a pretty a novel approach. I agree. The record flipping,
3: sort of a combination of digital and analog at the same time. Analog. Well, you know
1: they. Uh, <laughs>
2: We all learn yeah. and we grow in our podcasting that's process. Right. Exactly,
3: that's right. It's a, it's a, you know, always becoming. <laughs> he not busy being born.
1: Uh, somebody said, sent something to us on Twitter after we had Grill Marcus on there, like, lol, uh, about how when we were talking about, oh yeah, self-portrait, yeah, talking about self-portrait. <laughs> I, I went on a, a joking. Um, Die tried. I, I didn't use his name, but I said that uh, I said I said regrettable things about um, the man who said, what is this shit about self-portrait? But, of course, uh, Grill is also um, changed and grown and done better, just like we all have.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting as well, because I was thinking about that. Uh, the fact that Grill Marcus was on your show and um, had. You know, just uh, when I started to appreciate Bob Dylan, I was working at Rolling Stone, and it was like, you know, ninety nine, two thousand ish, and it was like I arrived into this very heavy vibe of like, you have to love Dylan, you have to know Dylan, you have to like, it's a given that no one would ever say anything negative about him, and that was the, the sort of official tone at Rolling Stone, who was this, you know, same place that had been. You know happy to savage earlier albums of his but it's interesting how an artist gets to a point where that's not allowed anymore for a little while at least or something right. and and of course that was when i was there was like an amazing era for him because that's when you get into modern times and love and theft and that shit. so um yeah it's it's funny that they are like the same people who we're up for trashing great albums are like, I didn't know then.
1: Yeah. Whores, old building or ugly buildings. And, uh, and Bob Dylan all get respectable, uh, over time. Isn't As that they the age. Quote
3: yeah. Something like from, that. Uh,
1: Chinatown.
3: Uh, it, it seems like sort of just a, a legacy of uh, any sort of long running music publication where eventually uh, you have to completely disown uh, everything that you used to stand for and represent in the past. We saw it with Rolling Stone, we're seeing it with a certain other website that we like to uh rag on quite often here on this program. I'm looking Which forward one's to. It? Oh yeah. You oh
2: know. I I know I know what it is. It's a subtweet. It, I like it.
3: Yeah. Uh I'm looking forward when we get to that point for our show and we can just say we completely disavow everything that we used to stand for and represent. And um, you know, Bob Dylan, he's trash. Why why does anyone spend any time talking about him just at all? <laughs> I'm
2: I uh, listen, I'm glad to have caught you in a Bob Vember when that has not yet happened yet. But <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I sense uh is that what we share as a point of view is I dislike it when people are too quick to criticize great artists of modern times, no pun Mm. intended, like, you know, are the generations as fraught as that phrase is like their generation. So the artists who I consider unequivocally great now, and if they do something weird, you know, all nowadays, there's even more stupid media saying stupid nonsense things where it's just because they need to have an opinion. You're like, can everybody just pause for a minute because you're going to be pretty embarrassed years from now when everybody agrees that the new arctic monkeys album is fucking brilliant by the way
1: yeah.
3: i've been uh, Stephen Hyden,
1: uh shares that opinion actually he's a he's a big monkey booster is that what the, you call yourselves <laughs> <laughs> i will now
3: he's a monkey he's literally a monkey man uh just like tweeter um. Yeah, no, I was. Twitter I was really into. The man. <clears> yeah, <throat> I was really into the last one, Tranquility Base. Um, I haven't gotten into the car quite so much yet, but it's in the same sort of uh, sonic uh, palette. So I'm. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Um. What? Uh, so I guess was that 99 2000 was that kind of like your when you like really got into the deep end in Bob? Uh, yeah, with that Bob. Bob that,
2: that was the Bob Yeah, beautiful. H-
1: how what? did you know that you were like really in it? Uh, like, did he look around one day and realize you were listening to? Um. Uh, good as I've been to you on CD in your car and and just know like I'm I'm pretty far into this or or what record was it for you it
2: would have been CD in my car for sure so uh yes thanks for recognizing the technology of the day but um yeah I know I just I assigned it to myself as homework and I had kind of resisted Dylan because it was weighted with some family shit for me I, Mm. I don't know if you've had other guests talk about this who are For my generation but you know like you were you're just like uh one of my parents was a little too into dylan and that parent has baggage and therefore dylan is a no no fly zone Mm. and then you know i met rolling stone in the late 90s and dylan is great again everyone agrees and i'm like okay i know i just i mean i i just hadn't even really appraised his music beyond the obvious songs you would have heard on classic rock radio as a normal person at that point so right I kind of just like read up on, on some of the big albums just enough to be like, what's one I'm guaranteed to like based on the description so that I. <laughs> and, you know, you might guess correctly, Blood on the Tracks. Yeah. Hey, hey. She was emo and she loved it instantly.
3: <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. There's no shame um, in
2: that. So that was the beginning of the Baba songs And then I, I really, you know, did then. And even still, I still kind of hover around. The same, you know, seven albums or something like that, all of which are earlier than, I mean, Blood on the Tracks being at the later end of that array, although I love Oh Mercy, but yeah, I, I, but I get that way. I just, once I like find the ones I like, I'm just like, do it again.
1: Yeah, the (laughs) thing where you just like play the song again, because you weren't sad enough the first time, (laughs) and then you just want to really be peak sad when it, when it gets to that point. Exactly. I do that
3: a lot idiot wins
2: nice and long so you don't have to replay it as many times
3: that's right you get a lot of bang for your buck out of that one <laughs> um, <laughs> and i was
2: and i was lucky enough when i it was so rolling stone had bob on the cover for love and theft in 2001, 2001 and yeah. so we all got to go to the garden to see bob
3: whoa really
2: november 19th 2001 i looked it up Wow. oh and my god i consulted my friend who was my uh, sort of Dylan sensei through those times, um, Jesus. which was which is Austin Skaggs, uh, son of Boz Skaggs, great dude, massive wow. oh, yeah. m- massive Dylan fan, and he really like. Once I was like, it was just sort of like it was a huge bonding point for our for our deep friendship. For me to be like, teach me about Bob, <laughs> um, but we all got to go to this this show at the Garden, and we got to like go backstage and say hi to Bob before the show, which was fucking. Crazy. So you've so met I'm
3: him. Right? I did. Wow. In wow. Case, so we're in one. We're just a, a single degree away from the man himself. Did you shake, <laughs> did you shake hands? Because we've heard we we've heard we, things about his handshake in the past. Sort of. I believe.
2: I believe the, we did. I mean, I sort of had. This, yeah. <laughs> I sort of had hysterical blindness in the in the uh, situation a little bit, but I remember a few things clearly. One is that he was wearing the silver suit. Mm-hmm. You know that he was known to wear, but we went into his dressing room. It was the quick like seven. People from Rolling Stone just doing an awkward semicircle around Bob and he's like <laughs> wearing the silver suit. And then I was just looking at the floor because I was so nervous and he was wearing his white, white sweat socks, you know. And I was just like, oh, he's an older gentleman. in his sweat socks. <laughs> He's just like us. He's just like us. He said he say grumbled something and thanked us or something. And I was like, let me please leave now because I shouldn't be in here. Damn
3: that rocks. Man, those those fall two thousand one shows are also incredible. Like uh, just from like a bootleg document and like the garden in November 2001, like literally eight weeks after A, the record came out, and B, the other thing that happened that yeah, day. What was that that again? must have been oh, yeah. just a fucking wild, <laughs> wild time. Yes, what a time it was. I'm looking at the set list right now.
1: You've got a good mix of things. You got wait wait for the light to shine opening sung by Fred Rose. Oh, huh. That's a it's an odd one. And we do have a uh, Watchtower closing, which is, and of course, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that, although that was the encore. So uh, but you've got well, we're going to get to talk changed. about Watchtower you've got, today. Yeah, we are. And actually, I'm, this is a great uh, I, I mean, I, I really was looking forward to this episode for the reason of having an excuse to talk about uh, John Wesley Harding again a little bit we really have not talked about it since the very beginning of Jokerman podcast. That's right. And, um, it is kind of, uh, one that seems kind of silly to not have talked about for as long as, as it's been. Cause it listening to it again, it's like, uh, to such an infinitely talk aboutable, or at least you can think about it forever. I don't know if I'll have that many more insights on it today, but it is kind of just, a a remarkable record that feels still like, I think we were right the first time we heard it and talked about it, like um, that it, it kind of feels like not anything before or after in his whole career. That's right.
3: Well said. Let's uh, let's talk about it some more. So we got at
1: the beginning Drifter's Escape, take one. We just dive right in when you put on uh, Traveling Through, and you start traveling through. You get the beginning section, which is John Wesley Harding cuts, alternate cuts um, of familiar songs.
3: That's right. Yeah, we get uh, like eight. Is it eight? Right. John Wesley. No, seven. John Wesley Harding alternate version, just literally different takes of the same songs. Drifter's Escape, St. Augustine, Watchtower, the title track, As I Went Out One Morning, Poor Immigrant and Lonesome Hobo. So really kind of most of the significant songs um, from uh, from the record. I don't think it's missing too much there. Um, we don't get an alternate version of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, which, you know, I, I don't know if, if one of those exists, but if it did, I would love to hear it. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, this really kind of hits all of the major notes from the record, uh, the initial record. Uh, Jenny, do you have any thoughts or takes right off the bat?
2: I mean, just a difference in the version of Drifter's Escape that's mm. the first track on the, on this bootleg set. Uh, it's so different. It's so much fat. It's, you know, it's a much faster tune. Not a ballad at all, um, and I like it better than the version on. Like Thomas. it better,
3: wow! I, I do. All right, slinging heat already. Um, yeah, you get that on a couple of these, this, like, uh, sort of faster... I think most of these versions seem to be faster to me than you get on the actual record. Um, I'm sure there's one or two of these that are slower, you know, but playing with the tempo is what he's doing uh, for the most part, but it seems like initially on these these alternate takes there were a lot of these uh, versions of these songs that were just faster, kind of strummier, kind of lighter-feeling songs, even though it's the same lyric. Like a song like Drifter's Escape I feel like needs to be slowed down to have some of the weight and uh, pathos that it comes with on the record. Um, although it does really sound fun and kind of catchy listening to it, like this, uh, this kind of strummy, just uh, it's more of like a campfire song kind of thing than some sort of deep spiritual, um, you know, uh, pensive tune. The way that it comes off on the record.
1: Well, th- that was the thing that I kind of took away from revisiting some of this stuff um, This in our unofficial uh, John Wesley Revisited right. segment here is um, that the record feels hyper transitional um, as an album in his whole career for the reason that it... it uh, it has some of the most enigmatic lyrics, which you know, like is a, is what people I assume wanted from Dylan at the time. You know, they were interested. You know, the last thing he had done was like the peak of his poetic um, uh, high wire act, where he was doing, uh, you know, with Blonde on Blonde, just like slinging uh, bar after bar of just like crazy uh, poetic uh, gymnastics, and then this <laughs> this record is not so different from that. I mean, it, it has the same level of like ambition on, in that way, but it actually is um, it's exactly what you'd imagine that place between blonde on blonde and like Nashville skyline era being um, mm-hmm. where you see the, the feel of it starts to be so much lighter. The touch is a lot lighter. Like it's a little less um, ostentatious. Not that Blonde and Blonde is, but it has these, you know, like... Nothing Blonde and Blonde is those ostentatious. Those grand mo- Yeah, there's those, like, grand Sad-Eyed Lady the ones is
3: fucking ostentatious, yeah, just sure. based on yeah. the length alone.
1: <laughs> and uh, and uh, sooner or later, songs like that, um, yeah. that have this kind of, like, epic scale. And I think you get still some of that in the lyrics when you... But you might not notice the first time around listening to these songs just how heavy or or... Uh, sort of ominous. The lyrics can be, um, because they sound kind of just so effortlessly strummed and plucked and uh, and played along. the The drums are so groovy, and the bass is just like walks along, and it seems like he was figuring out here like which ones he could do even lighter.
2: Yeah, it's interesting as well, though that that and I'm sure you guys know more about this than I do, but that is the period, isn't it, when he was like motorcycle accident and stuff and like the the albums in Nashville were sort of like no one really knew what he was doing there was a little bit more time passing and a sense of like I wonder what he's gonna do next
3: right yeah a little more kind of mystery as to where as to where he's gonna go Um, I think he's really kind of concentrating on his skills at this moment in time as like a writer, like he's conceiving of himself as a writer first, as opposed to a musician because he had just gone through, um, you know, over the preceding couple of years, this just radical musical reinvention um, and broken so much new ground, and you know, we don't need to talk about it uh, at this point. But um, you know the, the the focus that he had on each and every line, each and every word in each of these songs. I think in the way they're strung together and and packaged so tightly, like Blonde on Blonde. When we talked about it a couple months ago, uh, Evan, you remember like we called a really shaggy kind of record like there's a lot there it's a it's a hang record it's a long record it drags at certain points especially on the second lp and this is like they just all of the fat has been cut this is the leanest slice of meat you can possibly imagine uh this the way the, the record sounds the way the the lyrics are written the way the whole thing is sequenced and put together it's just like it is razor sharp <laughs>
0: be some way out of here, said the joker to the thief. There's just too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessmen, they
1: To jump around a little bit all along the watchtower was a song where listening to it again i was like kind of taken with how short it is how brief it is and i just tried to really listen to the lyrics and think about what he means because how often do you end up really doing that with all along the watchtower it's like i I, I don't really ever sit there and really puzzle with it and that's i think you know if we want to talk about like the other version that is obviously more famous like and even the way that Dylan has played it, pretty much ever since the Hendrix version, is much more like that than it is like what you have here. Um, I I much prefer the version on um, on the original record and this one because it, it. I don't think it's a coincidence that I was thinking I felt like there's a room to to think about the words when there's less um, bombastic musicianship,
3: right.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, it's sort of like I I, um, I kind of appreciate the contrast between it's good that when you focus on the lyrics, there's something to chew on there, but that it's not um,
3: made to be the point always, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it's a song that we uh, use this phrase, or I at least use this phrase a ton, like there's, you know, there's enough, there's more than one version of this song in the song, um, and so... Uh, obviously the Hendrix guitar heroics and all of the ensuing versions that have copied that Bob himself being one of those totally worthy totally legit uh, and totally great Um, but it is it is fun to always kind of come back to it and remember like oh there was this just like really simple kind of acorn uh, uh, at the base of this that grew into this enormous kind of um, uh, fucking century-defining cultural totem that is the Hendrix version and everything that, that grew off of that, all the branches. Uh, but it started off as this really just kind of basic, base, uh, and mysterious little puzzle box of a song. You know, it's still like it's it still shows different aspects of itself every time I listen to it, depending on what mood I'm in, what the weather is. You know, if the sun is shining or if it's day or night. Like it's it's a really kind of modular song to me. Yeah. it's
2: interesting though that it seems like people like even dylan fans don't really want you know interpretations of dylan songs and we don't and don't really want dylan songs to be like easily coverable or highly covered or have a version where the cover is is definitive more definitive obviously of knocking on heaven's door as well where it's similar this the original song is much shorter and Mm -hmm. um because it's like you don't you think his songs are so personal to him. It's so about him that it's that it's harder to kind of accept a, a different interpretation of it from another artist as opposed to you know some other artist. And it's to me, it's interesting in more recent years, Dylan getting into doing a lot of like the great American songbook stuff like to me reflects his desire to have those kinds of songs where it's like it's you know not about it being his song. It's about it being just like a great song that someone might have in their repertoire.
1: Totally. I think that's what he's doing here, really. I mean, this is a transition away from uh, the the hyper-specific, hyper-personal uh, style or mode that he was in on Blonde on Blonde. And here, you know, he was, I think we talked about how he, he was apparently reading the Bible a lot when he was writing these songs. Right. And it, it, there is something about um, the way that Along the Watchtower, really any of this, a lot of the songs, if not all of them on John Wesley Harding, I think they have this quality that feels like, um, as Grail put it uh, when he was on, that nobody wrote them or like that they're being performed by nobody or they have this kind of um, universal, um, ancient quality. And I think that it's interesting to see that, yeah, as you just said, Jenny, like we've made a lot. Uh, I've talked. Till I was blue in the face about triplicate and all that, and as early as right here, you see him sidestepping away from the um that that place of writing that I think is easier to paint with a, uh the brush of oh Dylan is being so um, personal, um, and after I think that's kind of what you get on a lot of the rest of this bootleg series is seeing him, and the joy and and pleasure of it is seeing him play and feel free and and liberated by not doing songs that feel so precious or in the case of John Wesley Harding, they feel maybe a bit more um, open, uh, a bit uh, much more open to interpretation and in this way that feels uh, like they're not necessarily Bob Dylan. It's 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 something wider.
3: Right. Yeah, it's a little. It's kind of dressed down. Um, it's yeah. It's interesting to think of Bob like as the cover covers artist, Bob Dylan doing covers of other songs, whether it's you know uh, legacy folk songs, Appalachian shit, or you know Delta blues or whatever. Uh, 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 versus Bob Dylan being covered, right? Because like um, I, I think you're totally right, Jenny. Like a lot of this music seems so personal or, or feels so personal, personally informed. These songs maybe not quite as much as something like Rolling Stone or 4th Street or something like that, but even, you know, it it really does have that signature of, yeah, it's fucking Bob Dylan, um, uh, versus, you know, the type of music that he himself has chosen to cover and make part of his repertoire, which does always seem to uh, um, uh, tend toward... Uh, the the songs that seem like they have no author, uh, songs that could have been written by anybody, whether it's Jim Jones or whether it's Why Was I Born, um, you know, just to pull two of you know his more successful, more well known ones. Um, it uh, I don't know they, that's just you know like it it almost seems like an element that he wishes he would have been able to put into his own songwriting. You know, uh, being able to write these songs that seem like yeah. they were written by no one and well, and he, yet he can't he help
2: yeah but it's also like i wonder if and i don't know the backstory here but like when you think about the when you think about um if not for you right like as a example of like you know i didn't even know that was a bob dylan song initially i just loved sure. george harrison the george and it, version it's like yeah. because it's just like that is a classic song like my friends dance to it at their wedding it's a classic song and you don't have to picture bob dylan singing it or delivering it and I wonder if his friendship with George or something made him able to hmm. tap into a uh, like a universality classic songwriter vibe or something. Or, oh, yeah, well,
1: he would love the Beatles or was at least, you know, awed by them as anybody in their ability to do that to just churn out these songs that mean something to everybody. So, yeah, I wonder, yeah, it could be. He's just like, well, George is in the room.
3: And and I think that it's, you know, it's significant that that's the direction he starts to move in like immediately after this, which is like, you know, he's not, he's still figuring out how to remove the whole Bob Dylan fucking presence, personality feeling from the music and just make the music, just make the, if not for use, just make the, um, you know, stuff we'll get on Nashville a little bit more, which starts to, you know, I think goes a step even further than uh, John Leslie Harding. Um, does in terms of of stepping down from this like you know Mount Olympus kind of status that Bob himself was at obviously in 1966. Um, but on on this one though, just to say one more thing
1: about a song on John Wesley Harding is sure. I pity the poor immigrant. That's a song that is universal in this way. That is, uh, you know, I actually as psychedelic as Bob ever gets. I think is is there's something about this record. Know it comes at the moment of like the the a peak psychedelia, and you don't think of this record as being you know classically like people say oh this one has nothing to do with that. Meanwhile, Bob Dylan during the Summer of Love was totally elsewhere, not not engaging with that. But a song like "Pity the Poor Immigrant" is kind of ostensibly it feels lyrically like it's from the perspective of Jesus or of 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 God or or something uh, looking down upon humanity um from some uh omnip- omnipotent place which is in itself you know a really wild and um total it kind of you know for lack of a better word I guess like a psychedelic type of uh, songwriting it, it's um it's from there then with the rest of the, the 60s and early 70s he he comes down and actually starts to uh make songs that sound like they're made by people, but uh, this moment here is very interesting for how it feels like to get to that point, he had to really open up some kind of uh, like Aesop's Fables type mode in his uh, his <laughs> songwriting, which, you know, makes sense.
2: I'm reminded while you're talking about that, uh, I aired earlier, I was trying to say that i prefer this version of i pity the poor immigrant and not the Drifter. Oh, really? Escape. Oh, this okay. is the this is the much faster i pity the yeah, exactly. poor oh. immigrant. immigrant yeah exactly yeah yeah no that's the one i meant i get mean i guess drifter's immigrant kind of thing and I- imagery got me uh, got me same. twisted there but <laughs> sure. um you know
0: i pity the poor immigrant who wishes he would have stayed home all his power to do evil and the end is always left alone so that man who with his fingers cheeks and whom lies with every breath Who passionately hates his life and likewise fears his death
3: Yeah no I I I feel similar like I I I don't know that this song, this version of the song packs the same punt. This really is the most remarkable, I think, difference between this take and the original kind of canonical take of this song from the record. I don't know that this version, um, uh, like I said, packs the same sort of uh, just like emotional kind of uh, extraordinary, you know, uh, uh, uppercut that you get on the album. This is one of Evan's like... Top, yeah, it's my kind of Easily one of my ever. top five. Yeah, um, that ver- the slower,
1: sad version. Yeah, yeah. but
3: uh, I will say, like you know, in terms of just like a song that's pleasant to listen to, I to- I'm totally with you, Jenny. I mean, this, yeah, is it's just, kind of a bop. It's catchy. You know? Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll say that, that I, I also have a great time listening to this version, and I think that that's it. It typifies something about what we have here, um, revisiting it and seeing it in this way that uh, is remarkable because of the way that. These songs, it it just shows something that will be true for the rest of his whole career that there are songs that can be as deep and as um, uh, heart wrenching or 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 existential as anything he's ever written, but it, he's just as comfortable showing a different side of it. And you know, for that matter, the the version of Watchtower that's most famous, um, the Hendrix one, it's still it it is kind of head and shoulders above every other rock song in a lot of ways, because if you do take the time to listen to those lyrics, you know, and you distract yourself for a moment from the guitars, um, it is totally crazy for a rock song to have lyrics like that. I mean, for like a big popular rock song, everyone knows to have lyrics that, um, mysterious and vague, uh, and, and shrouded and, and, uh, whatever he's talking about. I mean, it's, it's a song no one will ever figure out, but whatever is happening here at this era is, um, it's, it's a sort of fascinating, like compass rose for the rest of where he'll go, because you see that he was, he was starting to find out for himself, I suppose that these songs could be toyed with and looked at many different ways without losing their, uh, what makes them work.
3: Yeah. I don't know that there's too much astute listeners will notice uh, that we're, we, we don't have too much to say about the specific like intricacies of each of these takes uh, that are included here on the bootleg series package. Cause like besides the tempo change, like on poor immigrant and a couple of these others, it's a, you know, it's not, <laughs> we're not missing out on some like crazy never before, heard, never before seen, uh, version of any of these songs um and uh you know I don't I don't know that that is one element of just like if we just think about this is like the bootleg series package not from like the revisiting John Wesley Harding angle like you know I'm glad that I've heard all of this stuff I don't know that any of it is like uh, totally essential totally vital which by the time you get to the 16th volume of this fucking or no this is 15. Um, by the time you get the 15th volume of this, uh, you know, you, you're going to start to hit diminishing returns at some point, but even compared to something like, um, another self-portrait, I think, um, which came out, you know, that was the 11th one or something like that. This is, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's getting, it's, it's getting a little thin. The well seems to be running a little dry just in terms of like the alternate shit they're able to dig up and repackage.
1: Well, that just also says something about how somehow John Wesley Harding has a record just to... It, unless we have any more to say about it, but takeaways still to me is just like they scraped up as uh, ostensibly as much as they could for this. I don't know that there's like a huge cache of uh, more John Wesley Harding stuff, but it kind of seems like there's not, Uh, it seems like this is going to just always be a record. That's pretty hard to um, understand. Uh, outside, like you're not going to get some secret clue to it, it's just it is what it is, it happened quickly and it, it, it remains mysterious and uh, the songs st- still speak for themselves speak for themselves,
3: there you go
0: I pity the poor immigrant who tramples through the mud who fills his most with laughing builds his town with blood Whose visions in the final end must shatter like the glass I pity the poor immigrant when his gladness comes to pass
2: I mean, I think like compared to and maybe maybe it's a case of just there weren't that many takes. And so that's that's what there is or whatever. But the fact that the the second set of things in there is this fucking hilarious, amazing, fascinating, like Lucy Goosey, Johnny Cash session stuff. And that's so little of that surfaced like at the time, it, right. it like blows my mind because there's so much of it that's so just, I would say, delightful.
3: yes. Yeah, the Johnny stuff is really kind of, I think, the the best stuff that's here. Um, and I, I think it. I mean, it had like if you're like a super freak head, expecting rain forum poster type person, I think that they have had their hands on like bootlegs of this stuff, uh, you know, for some period of time before this came out. Uh, but in terms of like a wide release that anyone could listen to, and certainly in a cleaned up, you know, hi fi version like this, this is this is it. Um, that stuff is totally feels totally different, sounds totally different, and like I almost think of is like, it like listening to it, I'm thinking like this is like a podcast to me, like Bob and Johnny hanging out in the studio because it's not something like there are great musical moments, there are great songs, but like they there aren't really any complete like we're really sitting down and trying to lock in and nail this take of this song. It's just two guys and a band hanging out, and June Carter is in there too. Uh, Mm -hmm. And just, like, having a good time. You could just hear how much everyone is enjoying just being in the presence of everyone else there. It's like I I get the same feeling from listening to that that I do from, you know, some of my favorite podcasts or, you know, uh, even uh, here here (laughs) on old (laughs) Jokerman programs.
2: You know, I mean, my friend Austin Skaggs had played me whatever the bootlegs of this – some of this outtakes with Johnny where, I mean, I can remember – hearing them and be, and I'm thinking like, what, and I, and I lost track of it for the longest time, like truly, um, in, until, uh, actually now revisiting it with this. And it's one of those things where you're like, this is what you imagine it must be like in the studio. or You want it to be like in the studio with, you know, two legends of that stature to, to have it be that congenial. Yeah. And yeah, sure. There's a little bit of a sense of like, You know, not the mania of, like, dancing in the streets, like, kind of Bowie and Jagger in each other's faces. (laughs) You know, but there is a sense of, like, Johnny Cash is the elder statesman. He's only a little bit older, but he's holding it down. And you can tell he's amused by Bob. And Bob's, like, the weirdo who, like, but John is, like, who is used to being the weirdo, but is older, like, is... Sort of like Bob, is that okay, Bob? Or like just the way that he talks to Bob, he's so he's so enjoying Bob that I, I just love to hear it.
3: Yeah, it's incredible. It's just an incredible peek into the dynamic between the two of them.
1: I was finding myself, I, and more and more, I'm feeling this way, and I it's strange that it's just coming up more lately. But there's something where while I'm listening to Bob Dylan from whatever era, but it, it happened while I was listening to this. I became emotionally moved just thinking about, wow, that's... Dylan was just, like, a few years before this. He was just, like, a kid just, like, playing, like, strumming his little songs. And now he's just sitting in the room with someone he loved when he was, like, just figuring out the chords to music. And he's an equal. And it's it's just this thing of reminding myself like remembering oh like think about where he's how far he's come how much he's changed in any given era and that he where he started and just like how rapidly he ascended to this place um it's really incredible
2: yeah and also just like johnny cash like similarly it's just like with the the roller coaster ride that he was on and the point where they intersected and the fact that he was just older enough, you know, to have this, they were peers, but he was, a, you know, just a little bit older enough to be mentor-y. And then also not to fast forward ahead, but that little section at the end of this uh, set with Earl Scruggs, there's yeah. talking about podcasty. <laughs> there's one of the, because there's a bunch of studio outtakes. I mean, the heads know this already, but um, uh, there's a bunch of, you know, studio chat, like tracks called Studio Chatter that, um, you know, are, are nice, but, there's one in particular where it's, it must be they're set up outside with a microphone with Earl Scruggs, like he's waiting to right. go in. And they're like, "What are we? where are we going? What are we about to do? And he's like, we're here, we're gonna go into the studio with Bob Dylan. And the younger person doing the interview says like, are you nervous? And Earl Scruggs yeah. like, pauses a second. And he's like, no. No.
4: Nope.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Earl, where are we and what are we doing here?
4: Well, we're at the home of Tom Allen, a good friend of ours and we're up here to do some filming for NET and uh, we're gonna be filming with Bob Dylan and we'll be expecting him soon.
3: How do you think it'll work Earl? You've never played with Bob. What are your feelings about playing this scene?
4: I'm looking forward to it, really. Nervous? Uh, No. No.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Yeah, no.
3: He's a fucking kid. No. This guy's a kid. He's, he's, he's like... a pup. He's a baby. Bob Dylan. Who cares about him? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm a legend.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He's the oldest of the three in that scenario. But uh, yeah, that feel—the feel of just being a fly on the wall—I think is it's 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 so rare to get that.
3: Yeah, it's incredible. If,
2: and if that's anyone's what you,
1: nervous, it's it's Bob, and oh, yeah, he's definitely you know Bob. hiding it and concealing it uh, pretty well. But he's, I am sure, just like so. Uh, he must have been like so ecstatic at, at all of this happening because up until this point, I mean, there was not not really any precedent up, uh, until of, of Bob doing country music like and being one of those guys, except here. This is where he suddenly uh just rubbing elbows with all of those people and that is you know not a given thing when you you have just released Blonde on Blonde uh, you know there's plenty of country stuff in there there's some country stuff that he did early early on but he suddenly found himself uh, proving proving himself as,
2: as Yeah, yeah, and also I just want to say Not to, I just think that's also Credit to fucking Johnny Cash You know, this Johnny yeah. Cash was just like I, yeah, this kid is Good, you know, and mm-hmm. recognized It and wasn't uh You know, be, wasn't bound by Like the genre thing or whatever
1: Right, totally, it's it speaks, I mean, Johnny Cash Seems to have just like a great sense of Humor and is clearly so, Very smart and Obviously is a genius uh, as a lyricist and as an artist, but uh he was yeah, I think one of the instrumental in giving Dylan that um that nod of approval it seems that um let him in to that world.
2: yeah, it's also interesting I was reading up on this because Johnny Cash, so some of this is obviously performances from the Johnny Cash show, which was right around that I mean it started that's the first episode. Dylan was on the first episode of The Johnny Cash Show. Oh, that was the first
3: episode? It was wow. the very
2: first episode. I didn't realize that. And they must have been in planning stages for this show that when this was being recorded, the Times line up, And so I wonder just how much of it, you know, it was probably to be brokered as Dylan's going to be on the first episode of Johnny Cash's new TV show. I would imagine that the layers of agreement, you know, making that happen. And so I wonder if there was an element of like all this time they spent together in the studio that was just sort of like an extended rehearsal. I mean, they're obviously in some ways rehearsing for that, but you know what I mean? Like the timeline is they were in the studio doing this as that show was getting ready to be in production
1: yeah that that sounds like what they're doing cuz they I mean they're not here like we're cutting tracks this is this feels very off the cuff um as off the cuff as anything can be i mean they're they're just like there, there's some great little moments there's like I think there's a part where they're doing like a round or they're kind of like both singing and yeah, it's, yeah um,
2: exactly they're doing don't think twice it's all right and and understand your man like on yeah and Ch-
1: Johnny says
4: hey, you know the phrase comes out just right we both stole it from the same song
0: well, I tell you.
3: Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that line is so good. It's all been there since the beginning, folks, and it's not only Bob that does it. It's uh, it's Johnny and it's everyone else too. They, or, yeah, they're so all, Johnny, they're all Johnny
1: Cash is also canceled. Uh, you know, he's he's not um, he's not really a, a real artist, all right, for doing
3: the copyright infringement. Um, yeah, it's it's really a beautiful, just kind of meeting of the minds. It's it's weird. I I looked up Johnny while we've all I've been talking about it because Johnny seems so much older. You know, here he c- clearly comes from a different generation of artists and um, you know, kind of uh, uh, performers. And at this point, he's he passed what two decades ago, right? Like two thousand something like that. Uh, he's nine years older than Bob. I think actually eight years older than him based on like birthdays. But he's born in thirty two, when Bob was born in forty one. Um, it just it feels the, the gulf between them feels so enormous to me here listening to them like this and also just thinking about like the, the places they've occupied in the culture um, over time. Um, and obviously, you know, the fact that Bob has had uh, basically two or even three careers worth of music, uh, you know, if we look at just Johnny's career initially, at least um it, it, i don't know it's it's a strange kind of uh comparison between the two of them where he bob is is this you know kid basically uh, at this moment in time and yet since then has gone on to you know eclipse johnny you know uh, uh just uh, in terms of length of career uh and you know stylistic different directions and stuff like that you know time and time again he's technically a kid but i mean what
1: strikes me about that is that you think about I I think more and more realizing that age matters in terms of like these, those years matter when you're talking about periods of music that are so um, volatile and um, so much changes so quickly. uh, Nine years is a huge amount of time to have been around. Uh, You know, we look at how much Bob Dylan changes in six months in any point of his career and nine years Really, it's different for when you're actively changing the landscape of American music. Those years mean a lot, and um, just because they're not so much older, um, you know, it, it is a, a big gulf. It, their their significance, the levels of um, of in, of import that they have to each other and to the music world, it it, it really is um, all the more. Uh, impressive and and fascinating to see them realize that there's this shared sensibility on some level
2: yeah I don't know I I feel like nine years is not that big an age difference in a way though um like when you think about how long it takes for one person to kind of influence another young person I guess it's yeah I never really I I think of them even knowing that it is nine years as being you know like they would hang out together after this this went well and they're like bros now and even though like like johnny's a little older but he likes to think of himself as still being like dylan's eight you know he's like oh bob you know he's like yeah there's a there's a sort of like uh wanting to bridge the gap going on there in a way also you know i think like johnny cash like his he the era that he's from yeah different generation and more repertoire based and he had put right. out music at a much faster pace during the earlier years in his career leading up to when Bob started put he had put out a lot of music by the time Bob started putting out music totally um obviously even though he's he's his output stopped when he passed
3: yeah I think the question is like when when are the nine years taking place right because like today in 2022 nine years ago in 2013 like. Bob 2013 versus Bob 2022, obviously he's put out, you know, several incredible records, but like, it's not, Bob hasn't had some sort of like, uh, you know, earth shaking evolution uh, as an artist in that nine year span, 2013 to to 2022, but at this moment in time, I don't know about that. Well, okay, but I'm saying nine years, think about 1969 when these sessions were taking place and what music, what popular music sounded like in 1960 before the Beatles ever even put a record out. Like, that that was this moment of time that was this just, like, hot fire, kind of, like, uh, um, uh, prehistorical swamp where everything was just, like, emerging uh, uh, one by one, and it was so exciting and thrilling and, and changing at such a rapid pace. Um, that that nine year period back then that right you know, it was Bob and Johnny difference is different exactly than a nine year period today. I,
1: I, I suppose what I mean is that you know Dylan is somebody who is kind of the the it's it's at a crucial point where music is becoming you know the popular music is changing suddenly starting to change really really rapidly and and it's becoming unrecognizable from you know it, it, a few years pass and, and suddenly the whole paradigm is different and it'll keep happening. Um, but at this point it's a really interesting uh, sort of convergence where as that is just beginning to take off uh, and Johnny Cash you know when he was writing music and I think even till the end he stayed working and thinking and making music in this sort of older um, a, a, a style and, and with, a, with a pace and a feeling that is much more old world, and Bob Dylan is here as everybody's kind of onto the trying to find out what the next thing is, and he's making this connection, forging this connection with that older style while still being instrumental in moving things forward. He's carrying that um, the past forward with him and making sure to do that, um, which I think is what. If there's not, you know, that's one of the key things about him that makes his music last.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, you think about um, uh, like the Johnny and Bob, like at this moment in time, are kind of like like the two links between two kind of separate generations uh, or like modes or or methods or philosophies, you know, to steal a word from Bob's latest book. Um, where, like, Johnny's kind of like the the ultimate evolution of one, you know, kind of generation or era of popular music musicians where he is this sort of repertoire artist, this singles artist, this guy who puts out songs that are written by other people or puts out a whole record that all covers. Um, and it's, you know, he churns through him He put out 20 records between 1957 and 1969. I just counted on his page. Um... And, and Bob is, is the earliest and most, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, foundational, uh, figure in the, the, the clear, clearly different, clearly next, clearly evolved era or group or, or, um, you know, party category of musicians that comes after Johnny. And this kind of moment in time, literally 1969, the two of them in the session here together and doing, you know, the TV show together, um, seems like this almost like symbolic kind of like generation like bridging the gap kind of uh, gesture between the two of them and illustrating um not that these songs came out at the time um, besides girl from north country on the the start of um uh, national skyland but just the fact of them going into the studio together, Bob going on the TV show, Johnny being on the record with Bob, and the friendship that they struck up together at this moment in time and carried on to the future seems like the two of them illustrating implicitly, like, there's more more that's in common between Johnny's generation and Bob's generation than you might have initially expected or might have initially appeared if you were an outside viewer in, you know, this moment in time where they seem like such radically different kind of people from radically different scenes.
2: It's sort of like when um, Britney and Madonna
4: kissed at the VMAs. It's, it's
3: literally exactly exactly <laughs> like that.
4: Down the road here from me, there's a big olive tree where you lay down a dollar or two. You go around the bend, then you come back again with a jug full of good old mountain Dew. Oh, they call it that good old mountain Dew and then they refuse it our view i'll hush up my mug if you fill up my jug with that good old Dew. well my uncle mort he's sawed off and short. he measures about five um
2: i also i mean like it's you know of course in all of these bootleg sets there's the stuff where you're just like how did they not why didn't they but i still miss
1: someone like i don't oh, is yeah. that
2: like, how did that not come out on an no. album? Like,
1: it didn't, It's right? so fun. I mean, I, I love just listening to it. Like, that one stood out to me. Uh, Guess Things Happen That Way. Oh, yeah. Just listening to oh, yeah. them do Big River. I mean, there's Careless so Careless many... Love, so good.
3: Oh, beautiful.
1: It, it. I Yeah, I mean, I still miss someone. It's just, uh, I kept listening to that one again and again and again. I still again.
2: miss someone I feel like is in the category of most of the time in terms of, like, where you're yeah. like it's this perfect twist of where mm. you're like oh fuck I get what you're saying
3: <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. shit <laughs> <laughs> at my door the leaves are falling a cold wild wind will come sweethearts walk
1: I don't know yeah. if you can curse on this podcast. Right? Oh yeah,
3: you we certainly can. can. You absolutely can. We encourage it, in fact. Um, yeah, well, I mean, when I mean, they
1: just yeah, it's such a a perfect iconic song too. It's just I don't know. I, those first few lines are just like up there with the best first few lines of any song. When that song is that a
2: Jack continues. Clement
3: song? Is it? I still miss someone. Yeah. It is, uh... Because I think da, they da, say da. that Jack
2: Clement's in the studio or something at one point. I feel like Johnny's... I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly.
3: Johnny and Roy Cash Jr. have the co-writing oh. credit on that.
2: Okay, Roy Cash Jr. Roy
3: Cash Jr. Uh, yeah, <laughs> speaking of people they like to shout out, I, I love Johnny continuously saying... Carl Perkins, uh, when when Carl Perkins is about ready to have a guitar solo. It's oh, yeah. just like they're all, you clearly, everyone is just like having the fucking time of their life and there's no sort of um, uh, pretensions about like, we're here to make a record, we're here to like, you know, uh, lay this down and really make this, uh, you know, a, a, a piece of art that's gonna chart high on Rolling Stone's best of 1969 you know, kind of uh, uh, wrap up article or whatever. It's just like this is really the purest um, and most uh, purely enjoyable form of music making for them. And it, I think it, it, it stands up and makes itself loud and clear just listening to it here 50, 60 years later.
1: They had met previously because uh, there's that moment in uh, Don't Look Back where they meet, right? Where they're just kind of like plunking on a piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah backstage. And, yeah. and that's such a funny thing to think about too because that's the point where it's like it really feels like like Johnny Cash meeting like an alien or Vice exactly Arisa. that's where they're, they're from just fucking kind of different like, dimensions yeah but if they, i'm remembering truly.
2: correctly i believe that johnny wanted to, i you know and and i worked on a book about johnny cash when he passed away for rolling stone many years ago so i have some johnny facts Hold deep on. in my deep in my noggin and and forgive me if i get any of this wrong but i'm pretty sure that it was john who really wanted to meet bob you know it was like mm. yeah i think it was like John wanted, and there was, some, there had been talk that he was going to produce, um, some recordings for Bob, but you know, it was, I think he wanted to luxuriate, you know, in this session or whatever, even just like him giving instructions, like about somebody, can somebody write, go write down the lyrics for this or that. Cause right. you know, of course, you know, no internet back then. Or whatever, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and they were doing other people's songs and who knew the words, but them fumbling around for the words is so cool.
3: Yeah. It's so it's so much fun. I have also been thinking, just listening to two of them do this. Um, I I don't have the quote in front of me exactly. I've been trying to pull it up, but um, I, I, I feel like uh, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong. If I end up blowing this, but I feel like Bob, you know, the the, the American recording stuff that, that Johnny did at the end of his career, you know, with uh, Ruben and stuff, that signaled like his, you know, he's back in the culture. He's you know, here he is again. The you know the whole nine inch nail stuff. Um I feel like Bob is, has made Nails. yeah I mean that's the yeah, the signature yeah. one. Oh right um, the song. her her, yeah, her exactly. yeah. Um uh I feel like Bob has expressed like uh, uh written somewhere or or given interviews or something where he like he clearly dislikes that kind of like version of Johnny or that like kind of uh, project that he embarked on and and almost thinks of it as like doing a disservice to the legacy uh and the mm-hmm. legend of the man um that he was with which i think is really revealing when you think about it because bob has never you know johnny at that moment in time i, I think those are great records and great recordings um but it is clearly like of them a conscious it, it's a conscious effort to like you know it's very image managed it's very like what is the culture looking for right now how do we really kind of um you know uh uh, uh make this look Sexy and appealing and modern. All of a sudden, it and feels like
1: a museum piece. It yeah, it feels a little bit like it. Actually, is I do know what he's. Uh, wait, well, that's I, what I'm feel saying. They're yeah. a little it, pandery. Yeah, exactly in a way. pandery.
3: Exactly. And, and Bob has never allowed himself to be put into that position or um, make any sort of record that could ever be kind of uh, um, uh, interpreted that way. Um, and Bob's
2: like, did you say Tim? Tin Pander
3: Alley, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <That's> fucking, <laughs> I'm here. I'm gonna fucking sing. There's never, never Flute.
1: never acted proud, yeah. uh, uh, never threw took off my shoes and threw them into the crowd. I would right. say, uh, yeah. I mean, I those Johnny Cash later like recordings. It, it was that. Uh, who who produced those? That was, um, would be Rick
2: Rubin. That'd be Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin. But also just some like, of them are
1: I really like. But some of
2: them are great. Also like June had died you know this epic romance between johnny and june and june had passed away right. in that era as well so yeah i love that shit um but i do think it's i agree with everything you're saying and johnny cash was from it not just another era even though it wasn't that long before it but but like country music is so that traditional kind of old school music industry old school the formulas and all of that stuff and the panda and the and the doing something that feels sticky, but it's like part of built into the country music thing to, totally. you know, try on a different wig or whatever. And um, so, yeah. Johnny you know, I can't. think that it,
1: it makes sense that he hates those records if he does, because they the real thing that is a problem with them, I I think more than anything else is the production, which is like, you know, if. if Bob Dylan, it was like the type to, uh, as we know, bristle against Daniel Lanois and his uh, heavy hand when it comes to being on the mixing board. Like the, those recordings, some of them I kind of fucking hate. Like, I don't like the, I don't wow. like hurt coming. Up I don't hard. like hurt. I don't, I don't like it. I just fucking don't like <laughs> I haven't listened it. But
2: I, I haven't listened to it in so long. TV on the it. other
1: hand, like there's, there's some that I think they just sound like really, um, Jesus. They're I'm in God. your face and they're really, they they have this kind of um, cinematic quality, but there is something that is also a little bit, uh, I don't know, try hard about the way that they're produced. And it's like, it's Johnny Cash. Like you don't really have to add kind of this, like, it, it has the sound of like um, when a director puts like a sepia or like color corrected filter on, on the image to make it look like, you know, in, in like the two thousand early 2000s like every movie had that it's like why is the screen blue It kind of feels love that blue. way
2: they loved blue back then blue, blue and orange yeah
1: it's like johnny cash you just you, you don't really need to do much His he's right there he, it's it feels a little bit like gilding the lily
3: That record, I mean, for what it's worth, that first American Recordings record is like, that was my entry into Johnny Cash, and I think it's still a great record. And it starts with Delia. Delia, oh, Delia, Delia all my
4: life. If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone, one more
3: round, Delia's gone. Which, you know, we, we know Bob has covered um, uh, uh, really right around the same time on uh, I think really is on World Gone Wrong. Delia was a
0: gambling girl Gambled all around Delia was a gambling girl She laid her money down All the friends I ever had
3: Um, and there's a couple of ma- other amazing, uh, don't uh, get me wrong. I mean, when the there. man comes
1: around, it's like, there's some ones on there that are truly really, wired. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful stuff. Um, the, it does edge into that thing sometimes.
3: It's just, like you it. you'll, you'll understand why Bob Dylan, especially later day, you know, older Bob Dylan would not be a fan or fond of that particular approach to, to that sort of thing. Also
2: the, the larger question is, do you, but like, uh, like I don't, you don't need to agree with Bob Dylan, right? I mean, who cares <laughs> with Bob? Dylan? He pro- I probably disagree with him on so much stuff but like i would want i can't if i i mean there's something wrong with me you know what i mean like he's i can't comprehend dude i can't i feel like i can't comprehend the way he thinks and so i can't hope to guess what his opinion would be right you know i feel like if i asked bob dylan a series of questions i would have very little (laughs) idea what his response might be it reminds me of that clip that y'all posted of him accepting a mm-hmm. lifetime achievement award.
3: Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> where it's like, you know, less than a minute. and he said there, so many. There's things. All like a long pause, <laughs> and you're just like, what's it going to be? Maybe he's not going to say anything. And then he really crams a lot of meaning into eight seconds at the end of it.
1: I believe that what he says at the end there, someone is like, well, what he's done is he's paraphrasing a rabbi who is paraphrasing the Bible. Like, uh, and uh, it it happens to be just uh, the perfect thing to have said. He just uh, nailed it. Watching that
3: again, I do feel like he had like rehearsed that or like had, had like that was all. I think that was all when I saw that initially, I was like, this guy's just fucking off his gourd right now. But looking back at it, I feel like he's kind of totally in control of what he's doing up there. For what it's worth. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Johnny stuff is is the best. Uh, I also just want to give a shout-out to Wanted Man, um, which is, this is not a great uh, kind of interpretation of it. For my money, the Johnny, just Johnny version of Wanted Man from uh, Live at San Quentin. Um, is is kind of the, the primo cut of that which is a fantastic just rock and roll song and hearing the prisoners hoot and holler about it is so much fun
4: I got sidetracked in El Paso Stopped to get myself a mouth Went the wrong way into war is with one knee on my lap Then I went to, Then I went to sleep in Shreveport woke up in Abilene
3: got to get we got to get rock and roll stars playing in prisons again uh, but that's another matter um, but um, it, and it, and it's, I think the single kind of co-writing credit that the two of them share like that song is the two of them uh, and it's it's such a perfect kind of distillation I think of of what each of them is about and and kind of like the you know that if it's a Venn diagram right it's like right there in the middle and it's so satisfying just hearing the two of them, having a ball riff off a bunch of random American cities with these clever, Mm -hmm. witty little turns of phrases um, uh, in between in the verses. It's just, it's a delight. It's like one of my really favorite kind of songs um, uh, from Bob or Johnny, you know, whatsoever, and one that I had kind of forgotten about until coming back to it uh, in this context.
2: Do you know also, in "Careless Love" that that when they're riffing on the different kinds of guns, you know, uh, with the different verses? Because I know that's a that's a song that's a you know an older song or whatever. There's different versions of that song. It's not like a it's not like a Bob song, right? But um, yeah, I was trying to figure out like they seem so delighted by the different variations of it, like. Uh, especially johnny does one where he's like you know my 45 again it's like you all by my window <laughs> pane. my 45 again,
4: again. <laughs> you can pass right by my window thing but you can't get by my 41 again
2: And I just was like, are they consulting some old version of the song for that, and are just delighted by reading it in real time? Or yeah, I, I yeah, so there's a
1: yeah, you part in um, Mountain Dew that when <laughs> they're like, there's two takes of Mountain Dew. He says like, do you know how, do you know Mountain Dew? And uh, I think Bob says, I'll uh, I'll follow you, and then they, they just couple. do it. And then on uh, on the second take, I think Bob's Bob starts it, and he says like. My uncle, my uncle Mort is a hell of a sport. He weighs only a gallon. Yeah, he says he weighs only a gallon or two.
3: (laughs) They're clearly just like goofing. I think that I mean you got to wonder stream like,
2: of consciousness for sure in a lot of it.
3: Totally, and like, where are these lyrics coming from, right? Because we're not just pulling them up on Genius on a phone at this. But I honestly think that a lot, of, and because we, we hear Johnny, like you mentioned earlier, Jenny, like literally say, "Go write out those lyrics so that we can remember." I think that honestly, these guys are just walking around with records. Like that's where the that's where these songs live. There's no songbook. There's no official version. There's no you know, kind of sheet music or anything, they just have recordings of other people doing these songs and they listen to the other people do them and they try to interpret them the best they can. That's why Bob says that someone weighs a gallon or two or they're just riffing with all these different types of guns on Careless Yeah, they just
1: don't care, like, what the actual thing is because they're able just to, like, come up with these songs. It's like a game of telephone.
2: Yeah, no, once they know the structure, the the structure, the rhyme scheme, the whatever, then, I mean, even you can hear Yen... Wanted man when they are like, you know, I feel like it's John who says Duluth, right? Like mm-hmm. to offer like Duluth, that's your spot. You know, exactly.
3: Um,
1: <laughs> there's but, there's uh, other parts on like a uh, Peggy day. I mean, we didn't talk so much about the Nashville skyline section here, but listening to like, uh, tell me that isn't, isn't true. That's a song where I had to check again. It was like, did Bob write that? Or is that just like an old, old song? And that is one of the clearest examples of a song that could have been written Absolutely, could have not been written by Bob, but it was. Right. But it feels just like any of these other songs that they kind of just know already. And when they play together, it's like they really can just follow each other, like because they they're able to just basic. They know the the blocks. They know like the pieces that all these songs are built from.
2: Yeah, what's the other one? Four feet high and, uh, and rising. You know how high's the water, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh truly a romance for the ages. These two, uh, what uh, what could have been between the two of them? Um, I think that's. I mean, I don't know. They, they, it's just like this. This is this is. We come back to it all the time. I hate to bring it up again, but sometimes you just got to say it's good music, and this is just good music to listen to. Like, there's not <laughs> you're not gonna decode any secret hidden messages or uh, or offer any stunning. Uh, Bits of Never Before Heard Insight uh, when you're talking about Big River and I Walk the Line. Like, it's just, they're great songs, and it's two of your favorite, two of your favorite musicians ever Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash putting them together. What's not to love? Um, Any other. any other thought? And then there's, yeah, there's the little Earl Scruggs section there at the end that's Bob, I guess, what, that was like, they were doing it for a movie or something? Or like no, because Earl, pl-
2: Earl Scruggs plays on, isn't there like one of the, you know, Nashville Skyline Rag or something, doesn't Earl Scruggs play on one, on one track on Nashville Skyline or something? I and think he
3: is on Nashville Skyline Rag, yeah, which is, I yeah. think, why Nashville Skyline Rag is the last song on this record where I think he even says uh, like in the intro to that song, like, Oh, we're going to do another version of Nashville skyline rag or something like that. Um, But yeah, I, I think they, they were doing this because actually I have no idea why they're doing this, especially with the interview. It's like, I guess they were just, Hanging out and they decided to cut a couple songs together.
2: Yeah, I I wonder if there, you know, I feel like it had to have been another TV show thing, crossover kind of thing. And that's why they have that little recording. And, you know, if not for also for the Johnny Cash show or something, then it must have been, yeah, some... Yeah, some cross promo,
1: some the Earl ancient, show?
2: ancient, ancient cross promo. That's they used right. had cross promo back
0: then.
1: <laughs> Everybody had a show back then. If you uh, sold a certain number of records, you had a television program where you sang songs. And, what a um, great we should show. bring that back. We really should bring that back. You that know, Scott great. Walker had one for a second. Everyone huh. had one
3: when when I, I'm guessing he had it in like 1995 around the tilt era right oh, yeah yeah
1: <laughs> you know what's funny is there was actually like the last time he ever played on TV I think was a song from tilt Jules Holland I but, bet that went um, down
3: like a cool drink of water
1: yeah good it's good music
3: <laughs> um well uh, thank you so much for joining us Jenny. I think this was uh, a delightful uh, revisit to a delightful little corner of the Bob Dylan universe and uh, just a sweet treat, a little delicious little morsel here in uh, the middle Slice of Bob Slice of country member. pie. Yeah. Slice of country, that's right. Raspberry, strawberry, lemon lime. What do, we what care? do I care? Um,
2: well thank you yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the on the thing and uh, it's a pleasure. You be you're welcome to talk back about anytime. A non- Non-earth-shattering Bob moment, but just some nice songs and some lols, some lols with Johnny. You know, it's very my brand of Bob. So thank you for having Bob Vember when and uh, and a set that's so suited to my tastes.
3: Please, it's
1: just uh, just perfectly, uh, magically timed. It just
3: works. (laughs) And And also, yeah,
1: I mean that, like you said, I I mean non-earth-shattering is. it's, it, it's true. Sometimes you, you, you just got to have the Earth itself. There's only
3: one to, Earth. You can't shatter it too many times. Can't keep shattering it
1: That's the same thing. The
3: same
4: thing. It's
2: exactly. It's just like real Marcus not thinking self-portrait was Earth-shattering enough, or something like that. It's just like some albums are going to shatter the Earth. Other albums are just going to be better than everyone else's albums. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well said.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But yes, folks, thank you. Please listen to the LSQ podcast. It's available on the internet.
3: Yes, and uh, follow you on Twitter while Twitter still exists before (laughs) that has literally melted into just a puddle of molten hot lava, which appears to be happening with rapid speed.
1: Yeah, Elon Musk is shattering the earth when it comes to He's Where's honestly doing us
3: all a favor. He's, all, he's freeing all of us from our just eternal prison on that fucking website. So, someone should
1: free him from his eternal prison. Earth shattering douchery.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all that right. It'd be
1: great if he died.
3: <laughs> all right. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, no.
0: no.
2: <laughs> Jokerman.